trouble so hard. Ooh, Lord, trouble so hard. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Don't nobody know my And welcome to a very live version of the Radical Reverend Show. Your host, Sherry DeNovo, here. And today, we do it every month, and we're doing it today. And that is the Left Lefter Leftist Show. We have some veterans on the show today. It's wonderful to welcome them back to live radio. We've got Emma Wakelin. Emma I and I knew each other and worked, uh, you know, we worked across the floor. We worked together at Queen's Park. And uh, she's a liberal strategist and campaign manager. And we have Sid Lacombe. Uh, Sid is an organizer with International Socialists and yours truly, and we're covering a host of topics. Uh, so do stay tuned. And of course, I, I should say, as I always say, uh, we always invite your questions, comments, etc. Easy to find me. Do send them in. I always read them. Uh, and I want to give special thanks to Riley and Jasmine, who are on the other side of the, of the glass. The station is run by volunteers, and we thank them for their time because it's always a pleasure to see their smiling faces on the other side of the glass. Uh, right off the top. And it's interesting that both of you pick this as an issue that was central. And that is, uh, I think I read somewhere on Twitter, and I, I can't remember who said it, um, no, no one, a name no one would know, but said something like, why is it that the right wing has decided to pick on trans and non-binary people as their favorite punching bag with all the issues in the world? Why this one? Sid, do you want to start? Uh, well, I think they see it as a wedge issue. They see it as something that's going to be able to sort of mobilize their base. Um, uh, I've been, obviously, we've been watching what's going on in the U.S. with the hundreds of pieces of anti-trans legislation that have been put forward. But I've been sort of closely watching what's going on here in Canada. And you can see that the sort of, the rewarmed Proud Boys, various different sort of neo-fascist organizations, and sometimes outright Nazis, have decided that this is an opportunity for them to be able to try to build up their own forces, sort of in between the election campaigns, in you know lieu of the next convoy uh, mobilization. And they're absolutely relentless right now. They've been out sort of week after week after week. There's going to be a demonstration happening um, on Wednesday at York Mills Collegiate here in Toronto, where they're going to be talking about whether it's a sort of a day that is celebrating the anniversary of the Stonewall riots. But what's going to happen is the far right are moving in and they're actually going to be moving on it. And so the thing that they're doing is they figure that this is a good wedge issue. They know that there's divisions sort of within the women's movement around this, which is giving them an opportunity. And they're using it, as I say, to be able to build up their base. Um, we, uh, we witnessed, uh, Emma, a really horrific thing. I, I was kind of live tweeting about it in Ottawa at the Ontario Carleton District School Board that has a trans chair where there was a huge demonstration put on by the convoy. Now, luckily, there was an even bigger demonstration against the convoy in support of the trustees. But, I mean, it became a free-for-all, and police were just standing off, letting it all go down. It was really quite horrific. What about this issue? So I, I think, I mean, Sid's absolutely right. I, I, he, he, you, you hit it right on uh, the, the nail on the head. It's, it's a wedge issue. It's um, a tool that the right is using to focus their, their anger uh, and the, um, the anger and kind of um, uh, the movement of their, their base. And they've, they've been trying for, for a, few, a few years to, to mobilize that base. And they tried with the convoy. And although it was successful within their community, it didn't gain the larger traction that they had hoped for. 
So now, and then they had done the same during the BLM uh, um, protests back in the summer of 2020, but they saw that there was no app or not as big as uptake as they had hoped to to galvanize against that. So the trans community is their target these days. And unfortunately for us in the trans community, the left um, is not, um, uh, progressives are not um, defending trans people as, as strong as they should be. And there are attacks on on the trans community coming from, from feminist groups, from, um, uh, look at the Labour Party in the, the United Kingdom. They are waffling on trans rights. In fact, um, Starmer is looking like he's coming uh, to align himself with conservatives on trans issues. The, I, I can think of only a few political parties that are actually willing to st uh, stick their necks out, uh, the Scottish Nationalist Party. Um, and uh, they, um, uh, they, thank goodness, uh, they elected a leader who was uh, um, supportive of the trans community, but that could have gone the other way very quickly. So um, I think the, the right sees this as a wedge issue because it's easier for them because there's not a strong allyship behind the trans community as there are, whether it's the larger LGBTQ plus community or whether it's other um, uh, other communities that they have tried to attack over the, the past few years. It's it's shocking to me. I mean, it's I, I mean, turfs. Uh, you know the. Uh, I mean, I, I I hesitate to call them feminists. They're not, uh, but uh, many of them have been seen to be part of the right wing. Really, as sort of masquerading as feminists as as they do. Well, and they had Nazis um, at their their rallies yeah. in Australia, and yeah. they're proud of it. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, this is uh, this is shocking. I, I mean, just. Uh, uh, just to continue the conversation, and here you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show. We're on the left, left, or leftist panel talking about why are trans, non-binary, and gender queer people the new focus of hatred? Um, it's not so new, I suppose, but it seems to be dominating uh, politics, especially in the southern states, but also creeps up here. Um, another tweet that I remember seeing, which is so sad, was uh, just a kid saying, I'm 16, you know, I'm in Texas, I can't use the washroom at my school, and I can't get any health care. I mean, that's what it really comes down to, yeah. have kids that, and their parents are, could be arrested for trying to get them health care, trying to get them washroom access. I mean, this is, this is disgusting and absurd, and, um, and listen up out there, if you're not on side and not uh, actively defending uh, this community, then... Uh, then you're, you're on the wrong side on this one because uh, we're not talking about a lot of people either, but we're talking about people who have always been the most marginalized, especially BIPOC, trans, and queer folk, um, and uh, now have become the, the focus of attacks. Um, well, let's, let's continue with a little bit more of, you know, what is, it seems to originate in the States, but of course it doesn't, it's global. Um, uh, we have Trump. And all of a sudden, it might look like Trump might actually see jail time. Is this just a pipe dream? What's what's going on? Am I going to start with you on this one? So I, I think the um, it's it's I, I hate to keep waffling and saying it's complicated, but it is. So the the charges he's facing right now, the ones that he was arrested and. Gosh, is it really nice to say that. Um, <laughs> the charges that Donald Trump were arrested uh, for um, are relatively minor, and I don't think these charges he's going to see any jail time, to be honest. Or if he does, it's going to be deferred. The The more serious um, charges are, I think, coming down the pipe. The, the election interference uh, charges from Georgia, again, it's going to be a state um, attorney general that's going to be issuing these charges. So the Republicans, even if they win 
or if he wins, uh, he can't pardon himself because these are state charges. Those are that's one of the most serious things, and I think he could see jail time on that. And given that the attorney general has been successful in um, uh, winning court cases in order to subpoena Trump's circle, I think the circle might be going to jail as well. Um, so that will be very fun to watch over the next uh, couple of years. Although I don't think it's going to happen before the primary. It's just the the wheels of the court system, I didn't want to use the term justice, but the court <laughs> system moves very, very slowly. So um, I think that, and then the, I, I think the feds, Merrick Garland was waiting for the, the states to get some traction so that he could um, start doing some federal charges without uh, looking like it's a political um, uh, a bird hunt. I don't know if that's the right term, but I think you know <laughs> what I mean. So um, uh, I think there'll be federal charges coming off on the heels of the, the Georgia. The, the bottom line is Trump uh, is in a lot of lot of trouble, and uh, I think he'll win the primary, but I don't think he's going to win the presidential election, um, uh, you know, fingers crossed. But there's a lot of, uh, it's a perfect storm of uh, utter garbage for Donald Trump right now. I mean, it's, it's shocking that he's even potentially running. Um, Sid, I saw a really funny comment um, from, this is from some Republicans, and apparently there's more than one of them, there's a lot of them that are saying this, that if he doesn't win in 2024, that they won't, you know, they won't vote again. Now, I, I, I said, now this is good news. I retweeted <laughs> that as good news. Republicans will not vote again. But, but I mean, I, you know, worse will happen, I'm sure. I mean, this, you know, there, there's even been talk of, I mean, not that there hasn't been a, not an overt civil war going on, but it's certainly broken out occasionally. There's kind of civil war atmosphere in the States and has been for a while. But um, Trump, what, what's going to come of all of this? Uh, the thing that I'm worried about around this, as much as it's fantastic to see Trump get arrested, I mean, I think we were all a little bit happy and, you know, people were popping the champagne when they actually saw that. The problem is, is Trump's base doesn't care. Um, Trump's base does not believe that any of this will stick. They're not even really sure what the charges are. Frankly, it's a little bit vague um, to, to most of them. And for Trump, frankly, this is a little bit of a gift. We just went through an entire week where it was the Trump show all 24 hours a day, hours and hours of coverage of Trump's plane sitting on the tarmac in New York. Um, he is, his fundraising numbers are going through the roof as a result of this, right? He's using this as an opportunity again to be able to get more of his base whipped up, get them more sort of excited about this. And it's, it's a post-truth sort of movement, right? So they don't really care that much whether or not any of these charges are real or, 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 or anything along those lines. They don't believe that the election was, was real. I mean, so, so ultimately we're in a situation where there, there's not going to be that much of a sort of a response um, in, in the sense that the Trump, he's not going to lose support from his own base as a result of this. He's probably actually going to gain some. He's probably actually going to get some of them even more angry about what's going on uh, in the situation there. And so it's a little bit of a dangerous moment. And again, Trump is not afraid of bad publicity. He loves publicity of any kind, and he, he, he absolutely thrives off it. And so I think it's actually a bit of a problem that these are the charges that came forward first. I would have loved to have seen him uh, sort of being taken down for something a little more substantial like the election interference, because I think election interference and, you know, sponsoring or supporting a riot that had tried to overthrow the, the, the elected government, those are the types of charges that probably would have had a larger impact, I think. Right now, it's, it's a situation where he's, he's doing fine as a result of this. Every single major news outlet covered his press conference where he stood up and said, it's 
George Soros funding, you know, the, the lawyers that are coming after me. And it sort of, it, it gives him a platform unlike anything that we have seen since the January 6th mobilization that he did at, at, at uh, Capitol Hill. I see what you're saying, but I think in terms of like whether this charge or that charge should have come first, I think it's a matter of, um, and I can't believe I'm going to use a hockey analogy, but I think it's just a matter of <laughs> shooting the, the darn puck, right? So that at yeah. least there's some momentum and a chance for a rebound. And I think um, the the charges from Atlanta, the, the another hockey analogy, the, the, the puck was being ragged the whole time because the... You know, it had to go through the courts and can we subpoena um, Mike Pence? Can we subpoena Giuliani? Did they have executive funds? And the, the courts are consistently coming down against Trump on that, but they have to go through this rigmarole of winning these before the, the charges can be finally pressed. So I agree with you. Um, it would have been great to see the, 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 the Georgia um, charges come first, but I just don't think... Uh, the, the process had to play out on that, and it just wasn't. So I'm, I'm just happy to see that the puck was shot at the net and that something <laughs> might actually go in. Uh, you're listening to The Radical Reverend Show here, your host, Sherry Genova. And it's the Left Left or Leftist panel. We've got Emma Wakelin, uh, liberal strategist, uh, someone I worked with uh, and was fun to work with at Queen's Park. Uh, we've got Sidla Combe, who is an organizer uh, for the International International Socialists. Uh, and we are talking about, of course, what's current. Um, I, certainly, you know, the old the old axiom uh, that you know all press is good press even if it's bad press um, mm -hmm. is true. Uh, but what what terrifies me about this and Trump is that you're right, Sid. Is that uh, he's raising more money and that they're polling well. They are the the Republicans are polling really well in the states. Um, you know, despite all of this, I mean, it's shocking. And so there's clearly this undercurrent in in you know that's not. You know, that kind of abandoned politics as usual. They don't care, as you say, really what's, they don't trust anything that comes over mainstream media anymore except Fox, you know, and, and maybe, you know, some other local outlets. I mean, we're all in our own echo chambers on social media. So, um, so I'm going to go around again on, on this. But so in the, in the end, he, let's just say he runs in the primaries. What happens if that's not the end of Trump? What happens if that, that, that movement, if we can call it that, keeps rolling on? Are we going to see, you know, people fighting in the streets? Are we going to see a much bigger, you know, January 6th kind of insurrection movement? I don't know. Sid. Well, the thing I think about the sort of much the idea of it sort of being a bigger uh, January 6th movement, the thing that happened, of course, and we need to remember this, is when the January 6th mobile, or the, um, sort of riots happened at Capitol Hill, there was a big, big section of American capital and American corporations who broke with Trump. They were happy to take the tax breaks when they had the opportunity to take the tax breaks earlier on. But as soon as that happened, you know, the association manufacturers, big, big industry associations, major corporations saying, we're breaking with this guy. We are not going to support him any further. Um, and I think that there's still a battle behind the scenes around that um, in, in sort of amongst, uh, you know, the capitalists in the U.S. about who it is they want to support. And the reality is, is right now, Biden is actually giving them a righted ship on many levels. He's, he's continuing sort of to, to, to support corporate interests while not going the route of, of the collapse of the system. There are people in the U.S. and people in higher positions in the U.S. who do not 
not want to interfere with the imperial project. And there is a very large imperial project at play there. And Trump is interfering with this. He is not necessarily towing the line. And so I think that there's going to be some very interesting sort of back backroom discussions around this because the capitalists in the U.S. see Trump, or they, as I say, they saw him as, you know, a loose cannon for a period of time, but then they decided to break with him when it started turning into a situation where the credibility of the state itself was going to be called into question. And I think that's where there's still some sort of machinations that are going to have to be discussed. I, I can't help uh, Emma thinking, though, that, you know, this is, I mean, maybe it's, you know, over you know, overstating it to, to think 1930s, but, you know, the convenient fool kind of uh, episode. I mean, I, it was the same corporate, I mean, the same corporate interests in Germany thought that the Nazis were idiots, but um, but they were convenient fools, right, um, that you could be, you could use to get rid of the, the people who are going to tax you more. Um, and, uh, and as, you know, our, our there, I mean, there's genuine, and I think there's genu- there should be genuine concern about the support that Republicans are getting and the money that they're raising. But I, I would also caution. So the, um, I mean, look in the past few days with the the whole Budweiser situation in, right. and the you know the alt right losing their minds because Budweiser gave a can to a trans um, spokesperson, and you know they're now shooting up Kid Rock is shooting up beer cans on the thing. At the end of the day, Budweiser uh, companies like Budweiser and um, Nike, uh, which is another company that. Did that no one spends more money on market research in those companies. And if they are willing to upset the, you know, the, the gun-toting, rootin' tootin' um, Travis Tritts of the world, they realize that, by and large, most of society does support trans rights, does support women's reproductive rights. Uh, and um, uh, I think the money um, uh, will not be the the corporate interest will not be there for the Republicans uh, in 2024 if or 2020 yeah 2024 <laughs> <laughs> time means nothing these days uh, if uh, Trump gets the nomination and I think Trump will get the nomination and it will infuriate the DeSantis um, uh, part of the but I mean they've shown like Lindsey Graham has shown us time and time again that the GOP itself has no backbone and they will surrender but I think there are a significant amount of voters who were really, they just wanted to get rid of Trump in 2020, and I don't think that they're any more warm to him in 2024. Let's talk about the situation in Tennessee. Uh, If you were listening to Democracy Now! show that precedes this one, I did a little segment on this. Um, You mentioned, we were chatting before the show, um, that the ones expelled were, of course, the you know the the people of color, and the white woman got <laughs> wasn't expelled. But yeah, hey, Tennessee. Um, but yeah. you had Democrats, you had actual you know elected members expelled mm-hmm. um, from a legislature. Well, this is I mean this is right out of the playbook of the early 1930s in Germany. I mean the, we can talk about hyperbole and talk about you know oh, you're quick to use the the Nazi term, but. This is literally what they did. It was, it's an attack on democracy. And I, I, I hope that this is a backlash. I mean, I think the Republicans really shot, I hope they shot themselves in the foot. I, I, I think they have made superstars out of these two young men who um, are in their 20s, have a, an enormous future for them. I think they, uh, one of them could run against Marsha Blackburn in the, the Senate race next year and could, could win. They've given the Democrat, handed the Democrats tens of millions of dollars in fundraising. And most importantly, I hope that they have angered Generation Z and, or Z uh, up here. <laughs> but, um, and if, if 
Generation Z is is angry enough that they can actually go out and vote, um, uh, that will turn the tide in a lot of places. Um, and uh, I think they 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 clearly missed up on a moral and um, a political thing. But I think um, in terms of uh, you know the ends justifying the means, which is the the religion of the of the the alt right, uh, they really missed up, and I think they they poked a bear. They're back though, right? Sort of. Well, not yet. So the, the from what I understand, the city councils in each of those um, districts gets to reappoint the uh, and the two Justins. Um, uh, both the the council said they would reappoint them. Now the the speaker saying I won't seat them, which now would it would go to a Supreme Court issue, and then the Supreme Court is stacked. So who knows? I mean, listen, this is an attack on democracy, uh, and it's a very dangerous one. And we need to, um, and even up here, uh, the storming of the the trustee council um, chambers in Ottawa is a thing. These folks are relentless. They will not stop, and they need to be. Uh, um, we need to stand up and put them down, um, uh, and we need to do it legislatively. We need to do it um, by protest. Anything we need to do, Nazis cannot be allowed to to fester. I mean, the George Soros thing is clearly, you know, the the hallmark of anti-Semitism in American politics. When you said that, um, uh, yeah, and and Sid, I just, I remember. Uh, debate that I went to here at University of Toronto. Um, this was back a, a ways. Uh, at that point, it was Christian Freeland and Linda McQuaig. I was look, working on Linda McQuaig's campaign. Uh, but I mean, to all intents and purposes, two pretty intelligent women, a pretty, pretty interesting discussion. Um, and it was shut down by one guy screaming and yelling. Um, uh, Alt-right, maybe not, but just shut the whole thing down. Everything no. down. A couple of uh, security guards didn't know what they were doing, clearly, but let him do it. Cleared the hall, ended ended the debate. Um, so it can happen here. Um, what about the Tennessee Three? Well, I mean, I, I haven't followed it quite as closely, but I would agree with the bits and pieces that I have heard, in particular your, your analysis there, Emma, is that, that, I mean, we're looking at a situation where this is one small part of the larger far-right attack on democracy that has yeah. been going on. Um, and we're seeing it. I mean, we opened with the question of, of trans rights and, and how incredibly important this is. And there are organized forces on the far-right who know what they're doing with this. They don't actually need majorities um, of, of support. They need a certain sort of core of people who are organized enough to be able to do the kind of disruption that they're looking for. And we're seeing it again all across the U.S. in various different um ways, shapes, and forms. Um, and I think that we can sort of, you know, you can include any of a number of the much more high-profile cases, the, the cop city in Atlanta, where we've got, you know, a, a section of the far right in support of the police in, in that particular situation and the sort of collusion between the police and the far right, which is a problem. Um, but the question about how this is going to be defeated is the, is the central one. When we look at the situation in, in the 1930s, and we're going back to the 1930s again, the brown shirts in Berlin used the question of the openness in particular of gay and lesbian bars across the city as a way to be able to organize. That's where they attacked. The brown shirts deliberately took over the most prominent gay bar in Berlin as their headquarters to be able to prove that they had actually overcome this and they, they had taken people on. And what was missing from the sort of the ingredients needed to stop them was the on-the-ground mobilizations. And as much as we're talking about how bad things have been with the attacks coming from the far right and any of a number 
different ways. And we started off specifically talking about trans rights, but I was at a protest in, in Hamilton where they started off attacking drag queen story time and then started attacking Black Lives Matter and Muslims and Jews. And it was just, it was absolutely, you know, the whole litany of these things. What shut them down was the community mobilization and opposition. And as much as we're seeing, you know, these coming up over and over and over again in cities and towns across the country, the thing that is really encouraging is that they keep getting shut down. I've got a comrade who's in, in Moncton and she was absolutely terrified about what was going to happen because Moncton's not a terribly big city when the, the far right said that they were going to try to shut down the drag queen story time. And they were, the pickets were so overwhelmed that they couldn't even figure out how to, you know, do their own chance because there was 150 <laughs> people in solidarity and opposition. And it's like, that's the kind of thing that shuts them down. And they were planning on going out again. They had a fight amongst themselves and saying, if we're going to go out and be confronted by 150 people, why bother? And they haven't bothered again. And it's like, that's the kind of thing that is actually going to push back on this is, is those on the ground mobilizations. And we are seeing that in, in various different spots, in particular in Canada. The issue is in the U.S., we are not seeing the kind of coordinated, organized response that we actually need. Um, and it, it's very, very difficult. There's a lot of people sort of in the higher ups, in, in particular in the big battalions in the union movements, who don't want to rock a boat with the Democrat in power. And so that ends up, we've seen that before, but it ends up being a problem because unless there is a sizable on the ground mobilization to physically stop them from being able to get away with the kinds of things that they're getting away with, it's going to be very, very difficult. That doesn't mean that the legislative doesn't matter at all, but it does mean that it, you set the tone for the legislative process with the on the ground mobilizations. And I mean, when we look at the Tennessee situation, it was a, actually a major mobilization that ended up starting this in the first place, yeah. mainly young mm -hmm. people in opposition to mm -hmm. to the gun laws that were there. Yeah, and, and that's the key. I mean, the, the hope there are those young people who yeah. protested on the grounds of the Tennessee legislature. And in New York City, when uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene went and tried to spout her nonsense in Manhattan, and New Yorkers said, no oasis, not here in New York, it, it won't be done. So that has to be done in towns like Louisville and... Um, in small towns in Texas, not just in California and New York, but when, when we see it starting to happen in Tennessee, that's a bright spot. So I don't think all is, is lost. I think we, we just need to be mobilized. We need to be organized. We need to be relentless. We need to be that candle in the darkness, um, and I think we can do it. Well, we're going to go to our halftime, using a sports analogy, uh, a halftime break. Uh, but when we come back, we're going to move this whole discussion into Canada again. Uh, we're, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show here, and we have Emma Wakelin, a liberal strategist, and we have Sid uh, Lacombe, who is an international socialist with us today. And we have you. And so we're very, very happy about that. Do stay tuned. We will be back.
And we are back. You're listening to the Radical Reverend Show here on CIUT 89.5 FM, uh, Alternative Radio with an Alternative Radio Show. Who knew? Uh, we've got Emma Wakelin in the house. Uh, she's a liberal strategist, campaign manager. We've got Sid Lacombe, organizer for International Socialists, and yours truly, Sherry DeNovo, here. Uh, and we're going to move to Canada now. We, there was an Angus Reid poll that showed that one in three Canadians has either bad or terrible <laughs> finances. Um, another fact that I saw that there are more, in terms of debt-to-income ratio, Canadians are in worse shape now than Americans were before 2008. Uh, this does not bode well. This isn't a pretty picture of no. where people are at. Um, what are the political ramifications of, of this? Emma. So uh, the first thing I'll say is I, I think that that Angus Reid poll might even be underrepresenting the um, Those polls tend to, to not hit younger people. Uh, and... Um, those who are on ODSP and those who are on um, Ontario Works uh, are less likely to have uh, the resources to be able to get contacted by um, by those. So I think it's it's mu- it's much higher. And the fact that the, the Daily Bread Food Bank is, is telling this is the worst it's ever been for them, and they have gone through some terrible recessions in the past. Um, I, I think that this is a dangerous thing for our society. I, I remember uh, being on this show a few years ago and, and sparring with uh, our dear friend Alex about revolution. I said the, you know, people just love their stuff too much in this in this society in order to to go to revolution. But I think right now the path to, the you know, uh, being a strong capitalist to eat the rich is about one grocery bill. So um, we're in a very dangerous part of our society. And um, with AI coming down the pipeline and and could be threatening millions and millions of jobs, uh, we need to figure this stuff out. We need a more equitable society. I know I'm preaching to the converted on this, but this we're at a very, very dangerous uh, point. And if I know we keep up bringing up um, the 30s, but there's a lot of similarities and it's, it's very, very scary. Um, and, and Sid, Emma reminded me of one stat that I, because I just tweeted out this morning, but some 87% of those under 34 have at least $10,000 worth of credit card debt. People are using their credit yeah. card to pay bills and essentials. 
Sid. Yeah, and I mean, I would agree with what you're saying, uh, Emma, about the, I think that that is an underrepresentation. I mean, there's been other polling that has shown, you know, a good half of the population are one paycheck away from insolvency, one missed paycheck away from insolvency. There's, the, the numbers are absolutely staggering. And, and again, back to the question of, of what this means politically, when we talk about the sort of the, the, you know, possibility of revolutionary movements and the possibility of real uprisings and changes in the way society operates, there is always a possibility that that anger can go to the right rather yeah. than to the left. A probability, and, not a possibility. Yeah, right now. and I mean, unfortunately, under the circumstances, Pierre Polyev is the one who is actually trying to gain traction on this right now. If you look at the, the social media coming from the conservatives, it's all about cost of living. It's all about inflation. And the it's prime minister is talking about bills. this, the best, we're, we're the better off than we've ever been. Yeah, like, and, Chris, and Christopher Friedland says, you know, all you have to do is cancel your Disney Plus, as though <laughs> that's going to actually solve the problem for people. I mean, $2,500 now for a, a one-bedroom apartment in, in, in the city of Toronto. $12 for a pack of hot dogs I saw at Loblaws. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. And so we're seeing, what we're seeing is a combination of different things. People are scrounging, first of all, trying to find other things to do. Side hustles are, are coming up left, right, and center, which is part and parcel of it. People are also fighting back, though. And I think that this is something that we need to recognize. Number one, we had a, a pretty significant strike wave amongst private sector workers over the course of the past year. 45,000 construction workers, effectively a general strike in the construction industry, um, looking for uh, wage increases that would match inflation because they're falling behind as well. If you're a construction worker and you've got to get to a site, you've got to drive there, you've got to pay for that gas, you've got to find a way to be able to do this. And they were angry and they fought and they won. They won significant gains. We're now looking at a situation where in the public sector, I mean, we saw the fight with the education workers here in Ontario, but now, you know, 35,000 uh, CRA workers have just voted overwhelmingly to strike. 120,000 core service workers in uh, uh, the federal public sector are striking or are in strike votes now. They're supposed to end, I think it's April 19th. And so there's fight back going on on that level. There's also fight back going on on the, the housing side. Um, we've been seeing this around, uh, you know, some of the mobilizations that we've seen in Parkdale trying to push back against uh, above guideline rent in increases, against mm -hmm. rent evictions. I'm actually in a situation where they just bought a, somebody just a, an investment company just bought the building that I'm in and they're trying to renovate people out of the building and everyone in the building as soon as they realized that there was a possibility they could fight everyone wanted to because nobody has anywhere else to go there isn't another option for most of the people in the building and when people get that kind of desperate it becomes a very very volatile situation if you work a 40-hour week at minimum wage you can't even afford rent why would you bother taking that job then you're going to try to find something else that will actually get you you know get you paid and so that kind of thing is 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 dangerous for societies because it, it could potentially lead to collapse. But again, it's also dangerous because this is the type of thing that fascism thrives off of. They thrive, you know, the history of post-war fascism is small groups of people with very, very limited reach into the uh, broader sort of society that in times of crisis, suddenly they start finding an audience. They have the ability mm -hmm. to say, it's the immigrant, you know, who's doing this. Right. It's, you know, it's, it's... And they're saying that. They're, yeah, they're, they're totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At the, one of the sort of... Uh, 
uh, whatever you call it, the convoy rallies here in Toronto. There was people who were taking pictures with this guy, and he had a stand set up. As all of this was based on the Jews. The Jews started COVID. The Jews, you know, own Pfizer, the, it, and all of that kind of thing. And he got a fantastic response from the people who were out at the rally. We were, I mean, people were trying to figure out exactly what to do. So they just stayed back to watch and see what happened. Was anybody going to yell at this guy? Was anyone going to try to push him out of the rally? No, not at all. He was completely welcomed there. And it's sort of that is, is deeply concerning. And as you say, the right wing gets, gets the media attention around this, and it has infiltrated one of the major national parties in such, to such a degree that they are, you know, they're able to, to, to have a real hearing for very, very hard right wing ideas. Well, let's talk also about the infiltration of the media itself. I think post-media, what, 66% of Canadian media now is owned by pretty conservative forces, some of them Republicans from the States. Um, we're talking about the, uh, on the left, left, or leftist here on the Radical Reverend Show, uh, the, the sorry state of Canadian, Canadians' uh, personal economies. Um, and yeah, Polyev talking about the have-nots and the have-yachts, great slogan. Why is it his? Talking about yeah. the elites, why yeah. is it his? So, I mean, I guess, you know, my response to what I'm hearing from you is, okay, so Where's the NDP? Where, where's any, where, where, like, where is, where is the, where are the other parties in terms of, uh, actually, first of all, recognizing that people are suffering and making it their, their first, their first order of business, um, because they are, and, um, and why are we ceding this language to the right wing, Emma? Well, I am begging, I am begging our progressive parties to take this seriously because you will get whooped in the next election. The people, the voters are concerned about the cost of their rent and mortgage, the price of gas in their car, and the price of groceries. And um, when, when again, and my friend Amy will laugh about this, when, when hot dogs are $12, you don't give a darn what the other, uh, what Polyev's other talking points are. When he's talking about sticking it to the elites, that becomes very attractive. And if we are surrendering the, um, the, the, the concerns about cost of living to the Conservatives, then uh, we are surrendering the next government to the Conservatives. And unfortunately, we're surrendering the rights of marginalized people to the, the, the right wing in, in, in uh, the Conservative Party. Uh, and it's, it's very dangerous. So I'm begging the parties to start taking this seriously. Uh, and for some reason, we've always underestimated the right. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, Emma, you were rolling your eyes um, at uh, at everything's bright and, and bushy-tailed coming out of the Trudeau um, <laughs> cabinet. Um, one of the most tone-deaf uh, actions that they've taken, I think, is the stupid reef, like grocery money for people. I mean, I, this is this follows on the heels of Gail and Weston testifying uh, there and just getting a huge increase. Uh, and so this is a gift to the, 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 you know, the robber barons in the grocery world uh, and will do almost nothing for the average person in terms of you know, helping them with their food, food costs. Um, uh, what, what's happening there? I don't know. You, you, you have a perfect opportunity to, you, you bring in Galen Weston, uh, who could be a very convenient target, right? Like, he, anyway, um, and, and the, the, the leaders of Sobeys and, and the Metro or whoever the others. And, and all you do is you, you finger wave and you wag your finger at them and you say, oh, th what a terrible thing. Um, by the way, here's $200 million for new freeze freezers. <laughs> like, people are angry. 
People are like they are one paycheck away from eating the rich, and if we if we don't recognize that in progressive politics, um, well, first of all, that should be our bread and butter anyway. We are supposed to be the ones who are making sure that the the single mom with with three kids are are not living out of a dumpster in in a parking lot, and we are failing that. And um, again, we are allowing Pierre Polyev and the terrible people behind him to to monopolize this conversation. And uh, it's it can only lead to darkness. Well, moving on from darkness uh, here on the Radical Reverend Show, uh, left, left, or leftist panel, and and a good one. And by the way, you can you can pick this up on podcasts later uh, in the week. Uh, you can hear it on the station itself at CIUT eighty nine point five FM uh, in a day or so, and uh, and do listen in and pass it on um, into Ontario now. Uh, there's a lot of things going on here, um, but let's start with the most obvious, and that's healthcare. I, you know, Doug Ford has shortchanged the healthcare system over $20 billion worth, uh, according to the Financial Accountability Officer. Um, we're going to have less nurses in the future, and turns out today we're going to have less long-term care beds as well, even in the private sector, because they're selling off to developers. Uh, but we are privatizing to beat the band, so uh, it's going to, I, I already know Folk, you know, who cataract surgery has been going on for a while now. You know, you can get, you pay $5,000 and get it in a week or so. If you wait for OHIP coverage, you're going to wait months. Meanwhile, you can't see. Sid, healthcare. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, Ford, this was a plan from uh, the Ford government right from the beginning. They aren't accidentally underfunding healthcare. They're trying to kill it um, because they want to see it privatized. And, and they're sitting on enough money to be able to actually do something about it, but they don't want to. A couple of obvious things, Bill 124 and the, the sort of attack on healthcare workers means that there's fewer and fewer of them, which exacerbates the crisis and means that more and more healthcare workers are going to start being pushed towards the privatized options. And the privatized options are, are already in play. They're, you know what I mean? They're, we've been seeing it developing over considerable periods of time. There's always been a little bit of a chipping away um, at the public system, but it, now it is, is quite wholesale. The Ontario Health Coalition has actually done a tremendous amount of research on this, and they've got thousands of cases of people being of upselling in various different spots where, you, you know, again, you can pay the money and skip the line of privatized surgeries happening in, in hospitals um, in sort of sort of publicly funded hospitals with publicly funded nurses, but with uh, people paying for private surgeries, and this has been ongoing. The OHC, the, the Health Coalition, by the way, is doing a series of referendums that have been going on across the province. They've sort of staggered based on different uh, sort of timing, where what they want to do is they are ultimately are looking to try to get a million people to vote um, in opposition to the privatization of healthcare, and it's a campaign that's designed more than anything to unearth the people who are angry about this and want to get mobilized around it to be able to to sort of push back on it. And I know that there was a referendum at University of Toronto at Sid Smith um, a couple of weeks ago. They set that one up early because they wanted to get students before the end of the year, et cetera. But there's going to be um, more of these things uh, on the go over the next little while. So people should check out Ontario Health Coalition if, if you can. They've got really good um, organizing going on. The, the meeting in Toronto um, that was held by the Greater Toronto Health As uh, Assembly um, Association, sorry, 
Uh, it, the first meeting that they had when they were calling on this had almost a thousand people at it. There's definitely a base of people who want to f fight back around this. And again, that's going to be the spot where we're going to be able to push back against Ford because he's only listening to his developer friends. He's only listening to the people who want to see this privatized. And again, none of this is accidental. It was a, it was a plan right from the beginning from the Ford government. How do we stop it, Emma? Uh, well, we we fight it by actually voting. Um, Forty-seven percent of people bother to show up. Uh, Ford's here for the next three years. We we organize and make sure he doesn't win again. Um, Sid's right. Listen, crisis crises is the plural, I guess. Um, yeah, crises are uh, profitable, and uh, they. Famous example back in the nineties where they tried to create a. Um, they were caught trying to create a crisis in education so that they could. Uh, do what they want to do with um, education. And Sid's right. They're, they're creating this crisis in healthcare so that they can privatize it because there's a lot of money to be made. And their goal is to kill on uh, public healthcare in, in this country. Uh, so how do we fight it? We just make sure they don't win. Like, that's the... Uh, the we make it unprofitable for them, uh, their their supporters, and we... We, we fight like hell and we organize and we, we actually get up off our butts and we, we go to a voting station in 2026 and we pray that the hospitals are still there when we get there. I, uh, I, I'm wondering now, and maybe you can both weigh in, um, we have a lot of unions involved in healthcare. Yep. Um, New York, the nurses went on strike. Now that in the UK, doctors are going out. Nurses went out and made some gains. Where, I mean, unions are making a lot of noise, but where are they? Where are they? I don't know. Sid, anybody want to weigh in? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I know that there are noises from the bottom up. The problem is, is from the top down, they're getting squelched. This is the standard that we see in the union movement here. The nurses have been trying to mobilize and have actually had some very good mobilizations uh, in Toronto. When we did the, they did a marching. I'm trying to remember the date a month or so ago, marching up University Avenue, and the nurses were coming out of the hospitals with mm -hmm. signs, with, you know, cheering this on. There is a mood on from the bottom up to actually do something about this. The question is, is where are the the top of the unions, which uh, for a brief period around the education workers uh, fight where there was the possibility or at least the suggestion of a general strike, although I'm pretty sure that there were some major union leaders and bureaucrats who were pretty terrified at the prospect of a general strike under those circumstances. But the question is, where is the coordinated opposition around this? We have actually had campaigns in the past that have pushed against Tory uh, positions, have, have you know pulled working class support away from the Tory base. I'm thinking about the Tim Hudak campaign. When Hudak was uh, sort of talking about 100,000 job cuts and the potential you know to bring in right-to-work legislation, there were major mobilizations amongst the unions. The OFL and the labor councils had mass stewards assemblies across the province where there were thousands of workers in each one of them. Workplace meetings, lunchroom meetings, plant gating. They did that over the course of a number of months and the support Support for Hudak dropped like a stone amongst union members, and that's the kind of thing that could be happening right now. The question is, I'm not really sure where they are on this right now. The next thing I know that the OFL is doing is a mobilization on June 3rd, which is okay, but the, there is an, an appetite to move quicker and, crucially, to support the healthcare workers who are going onto the streets, because that's, I think, going to be the most important thing, is, is if you can get a real revolt amongst the nurses, amongst the other 
staff um, at various different hospitals. That's the kind of thing that has the ability to push back on this. I think in the sort of immediate term, rather than waiting until that next election, uh, um, and to sort of push back against it so that we don't actually end up in a situation where we don't have public health care by the time that election does roll around. Yeah, and, and keep in mind, I mean, we can't uh, put this, we can't allow this to be put onto the grassroots of these unions either, because at the end of the day, these nurses, these doctors, these um, the healthcare uh, workers, they have been worked to the bone over the pandemic. They they are understaffed. They're exa- they're working sixteen hour shifts, um, sometimes even more than that. So, when do they have time to even get out on the streets? Because we're working them to the bone. We're killing them. a lot of. The, we are driving them to bad health and and worse, and it's by design and. That's why the, the leaderships of these unions have to be um, more aggressive and uh, solidarity with other unions have to, to take place. Yeah, well, that's abso- it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm just wait, conscious of the time and a couple of other topics I want to move on to. Um, bringing it down local now, we've, we've done um, world, <laughs> world North America at least. Um, we've done uh, Canada. Uh, we've done province. Right here at home, uh, kind of an intersection of provincial and, and city, Ontario Place. Ontario Place is up for sale. Um, we're subsidized by uh, <coughs> subsidized by our tax dollars. It's going to be, don't you know it, a beautiful spa for those who can afford it. Um, a thousand trees will be, you know, taken down because of this. There'll be more parking, more carbon emissions, uh, and guess what? A whole lot less public space. Um, now there's quite a movement, just like there was about the green belt paving over the green belt. Um, uh, I, I, Bill Davis, I mean, what strikes me right off the bat is that this is a Bill Davis project back in the day. This was a conservative project, uh, and this is a conservative government, so they don't even mind contradicting their own for this. Um, uh, so, yeah, Sid, why don't you start off on this? Yeah, I think conservative politics has moved a little bit further to the right since Bill Davis. But it's, it, I mean, there's Ford is, is doing this, obviously, for his own developer buddies. Uh, the, I don't even think they care if this spa ends up working out, because once the building is made, then they can actually turn it into the casino that he's wanted right from the beginning. But ultimately, yeah, I mean, it, it's devastating for, for people who live in the area. The concentrations of people, not just in, in places like Parkdale, but in the condos that are developing around and how crucial space like Ontario Place is. You yeah. go there on an August afternoon and it's packed. There's people all over the place. And and to have, you know, that much of it stripped away uh, is is going to be, you know, a significant blow to the lifestyle of, of regular uh, working people in, in uh, Toronto. And uh, again, Ford spending, what do they say? And it's going to be a half a billion dollars they're spending on the parking lot um, yeah, it, it, in, in, in this, which is absolutely absurd. But again, it's part of, you know, his vision of every everything being a casino or Disneyland. And what we're, I think, seeing, though, is is the beginnings of some pretty significant campaigning and opposition. Um, there's a lot of people that use it, again, uh, that a lot of people who use that space um, who are really quite upset about this. Because if, if you lose that, you end up in a very difficult situation. I mean, from there's half of the, the shoreline is also privatized with the yacht clubs and various different mm-hmm. things. You got to get all the way over to Sunnyside. It's actually, it's going to be a significant blow. As I say to people's to people's lifestyle, the question is whether or not the city is going to be able to have any kind of power to be able to push back on this, and it's not going to be able to do so without there being some kind of more significant mobilization that comes from the population itself. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it, and I argue, uh, I think you're wrong, Sherry. Ontario Place is not under is not for sale; it's being given away. Mm, and, and not only that, we're 
we're giving a multi-decade lease and all that prime beautiful land to um, developers from Australia, I think. I don't even know where they're from. Um, uh, but we're giving them half a billion dollars. We're paying this, this, these developers to come take this land from us, this public land, that could have been, be there were plans in the last 10 years, in the final years of the, the Wynn government, to turn that into a beautiful um, uh, park, uh, a nature park, with, with, so that folks in downtown Toronto could walk uh, and access greenery and, and green space. And we are going to turn that into an amusement park uh, as, a, as a billion dollar gift to Doug Ford's developer buddies. And, and if it does fail, Sid's right, if it does fail, then Doug finally gets his long-awaited casino. So like, it, it, it's absolutely the worst use of uh, that land in terms of public um, uh, gain, but it's also just the dirtiest, disgusting political move to reward his very rich friends. Emma, just a uh, you know, question to you. Um, I, we're all Torontonians here, but... Why does Doug Ford hate Toronto so much? I mean, I, I, he lives here. He lives in Etobicoke. It's sort of Toronto. Um, and, I mean, it's like the moves moves uh, for the, you know, the super mayoral powers, the moves to totally change the election system. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of a negative focus on this city, which is really bigger than many provinces in Canada. Why? Because uh, they didn't treat his brother very well, I guess, uh, because they didn't get their way when they were in charge of uh, City Hall, uh, because the, these are the, the exact type, the, the folks that live, uh, particularly in, in, the, in the core uh, areas of, of Toronto, these are the folks that the, the Fords love to turn into, into uh, scapegoats for their, their, their base. Um, I don't know if Doug necessarily hates Toronto, but he, he certainly hates the people that live here. And he, um, he will burn this city to the ground if it uh, makes his billionaire buddies even richer and uh, it keeps his base happy. We have just five minutes left. I want to talk about the mayoral race. It's ongoing. Uh, we've got a lot of uh, right-wing candidates. Um, we've got some middle um, when you're, we were speaking about Ontario Place, the only the only person I've heard speak about it as an issue and come up with some city solution to it was has been Josh Matlow, who's talked about that the city can actually weigh in and 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 use some of its powers to, if not stop it, at least slow it down. Sid Merrill Race. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I haven't paid a ton of attention to the mayoral race yes, uh, yet because I was waiting to see sort of who was coming in. I mean, I know Josh. We worked together at the Canadian Peace Alliance way back in the day. Um, but uh, I, I, I mean, at present, I think that the bigger concern for us is who is actually going to be grabbing a hold of, of the former John Tory vote, right? Because the money in this, pro in this city wants somebody to continue the Tory uh, uh, sort of plans. Um, and we've been seeing... I, I do think that, I mean, I would, wasn't sure if it was going to be Brad Bradford initially, but it does look as though Mark Saunders might end up being the one who's going to pick up some of that. It would be good if the two of them could actually split that right vote, but I'm not entirely sure that it's going to happen. But you can see just in the positioning that is happening, if you look at the newspapers this weekend when they were talking about what's going on in, in the mayoral race, um, uh, it, was, it was usually... 
I mean, the, the, most of the candidates who are further to the left were far, far down the list, and I, I, I have a stinking suspicion that they're going to try to use um, the sort of recent discussions about violence, in particular on the TTC, but violence in general uh, around the city, to try to find a way to get Mark Saunders in there. Um, and it does seem as though the, the you know the people who would want to push for for uh, essentially a Ford proxy in Toronto are going to put an awful lot of money into Saunders and into uh, his campaign to try to actually build up his base. But again, what people need to be talking about, Ontario Place is incredibly important, but the questions around affordability are going to be the central questions. Um, we can talk about the, the question of housing, we can talk about the you know encampment clearings, but we need to talk about what the City of Toronto can actually do to support renters in a situation where affordable housing is increasing increasingly at, uh, at risk. Emma? Yeah, I think the ballot is going to be about the size of a phone book. There's going to be 200 people running. Uh, it's going to be extraordinarily crowded, and I think whoever ultimately wins is probably going to win with about 20% of the 15% who's going to actually vote. Um, I think uh, I, I would say to Sid, though, I would disagree. I, Saunders will go after the Ford vote from the 2014-2010 uh, election. Um, the Tory vote will be split probably between Bradford and Bailao, and um, right on the progressive side will be Josh Matlow, but, and if Olivia enters the race, yeah. I think then that will further um, fragment that. So I, um, I could see the Etobos and Scarboroughs going to Saunders, the, the North Yorks and the, the Don Valleys and, and all that going, uh, Davenport and Parkdale going to Bailao, um, would probably uh, defeat Bradford and then Matt Lau winning the, the core. And where's most of those votes? I would say they're probably in that Don Valley, North York area. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's such a... Well, um, we will we, we, we'll live to see what happens on that. You're listening to the Radical Reverend Show. We're coming to a close. It's been an action-packed hour. Uh, please, if you haven't caught it all, uh, listen on podcasts, listen on, on the station's website, and do come back next week. Uh, just a reminder to you all that uh, you're listening again to the Radical Reverend Show. Your host, Sherry Genova, and I'm easy to reach. I love to hear from you. Until next time on the Radical Reverend Show. So hard, don't nobody know my trouble but God. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Ooh, Lord, and my trouble so hard. Ooh, Lord, and my trouble so hard.